0: or visit CollateralBase.com.
1: This is Everything Is Personal
2: with Len May.
3: Everyone, welcome to another episode of Everything Is Personal. Once again, my special co-host, I don't mean special in a way of like short yellow bus special, but special in terms of a really handsome, smart, good looking. If you guys didn't see him, you guys need to watch the video because uh, John Small is one of those people. Welcome, John. Are you
2: talking about me here? I, I was waiting yeah, for, for another. I was like, <laughs> who else is on the show today? Uh, thank you, Lynn, for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> yeah. But really, we should have saved it for our special guest. He, he well, gets yeah. all, he gets well, all I mean, the
3: love. Well, absolutely. And I was just saying, our special guest, I was just saying how jealous I am of uh, his hair. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to see if I can... Uh, you know, see for uh, what that is in his uh, genes. I, I actually know, but I can't disclose that because we're under HIPAA. But anyway, for I just want to introduce. <laughs> I want to introduce uh, our very very special guest, Andrew D'Angelo, a real OG in the industry. Totally, uh, I have a lot of respect for Andrew, and uh, there's no way I can introduce him and do him justice. So I'd like Andrew to kind of give a, a little bit of an intro about himself, and then I uh, have a few questions to ask him. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks Welcome, Andrew.
4: Ha- thanks for having me, gents. Really appreciate it. Nice to see you both again. Yes, Len, I, you <laughs> and I did a little DNA analysis of my endocannabinoid system. So for- I know a lot about you. That I, I want to know. <laughs> I
3: want to know
2: what the hair gene is because I need that.
3: Can't, can't disclose it, but we can clone. <laughs> um,
4: yeah, we'll see if the world needs more than one of me. But um, <laughs> there you go. Um, but look, um, my name's Andrew D'Angelo. Many of your listeners are probably more, a little bit more familiar with my older brother, Steve D'Angelo, and <laughs> we've been at this cannabis activism entrepreneurship for many decades. I started in the 80s. My brother's about 10 years older than me. He started wow. in the 70s, probably best known in the legal cannabis industry for Harborside, our vertically integrated cannabis company here in California. I think we're up to six retail shops now, Big Farm, Manufacturing Brand, and um, Harborside is now a publicly traded Canadian yeah. company, if you can believe that. Crazy. And then also Last Prisoner Project is our nonprofit organization that's just a couple years old. The main thing I've been working on in my post-Harborside life in terms of social justice is right. Last Prisoner Project. So so those those are my two things I'm most well known for today. But of course, I've done a lot of activism. And I've also done a lot of political, I guess you'd call it um, operative work. Once you pass the laws, then you're not an activist anymore. You're an operative. Hmm. Um, I wish I could say I was as good at at being an operative as I was as an activist. Um, (laughs) But um, I, I think we're all trying to learn how to make these frameworks better. And that is an operating system yeah. that we have to get good at not activating a change right we have yeah. to operate an evolution <laughs> yeah uh, um, you're
3: absolutely absolutely and uh, definitely been around for a long time uh, it's interesting to even see you smile and, and go through this because we went from activism in the 80s and 90s to where we are today and Look at this election. I'm not talking about like the presidential thing. I'm just talking about cannabis because that's the real winner. It's so mind boggling to me and ironic to know. Like, I held a rally in 1993 at Independence Hall. My keynote speaker was Miss Elvie Masika. And I'm like, holy shit. And where we are today, Mississippi, Dakota. I mean, it's crazy. What, what are your thoughts on where we are? Uh, this isn't one of the questions. I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are on where we kind of came from, where we are today, and what is it looking for?
4: Well, the American people keep saying over and over and over again that they want to heal the divisions in our society uh, with a web of cannabis. So it doesn't matter if it's a red state, doesn't matter if it's a blue state, conservative, liberal, they're voting for cannabis. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how the adversaries like mississippi had two ballot initiatives to confuse the electorate the elites in mississippi didn't want anything to win so they confused the electorate the electorate was smarter than them and they voted for the right one that that created the most access for patients south dakota same thing two things on the ballot they had medical and adult use both on the ballot again trying to scare the electorate oh no you don't want adult use you better vote no on all of it we don't want yep. that in south dakota the governor was against it mm-hmm. the legislature was against it and you know cannabis won more votes in south dakota than biden did i'm not sure if it won more than trump <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah but it was probably pretty close if it yeah for it sure trump, right um so, so didn't
3: jersey have theirs on the back of the ballot or some of like that mail in Maryland oh yeah too?
4: Oh, they did all these shenanigans in New Jersey. Similar, right? Similar yeah. situation.
2: I just, I mean, again, I don't want to, we say we wouldn't make this too political, and, <laughs> and but it's, it's it's hard when I have you on the show. So what's the problem here? Like every time we do a poll, there's more and more Americans that want to legalize pot. And yet, I don't know why there's this disconnect between the federal government and what the American people want. I don't know if it's big pharma. I don't know who is standing in the way here at this point. I mean, politicians.
4: That's
2: it. I don't get it. Is it big? I mean, again, I don't want to get too conspiracy theory about this, but what what is going on? Like, why is this not happening faster?
4: It's a really good question. I bang my head against the wall trying to figure that out, too. You have something that's more popular than any politician of any party, basically, and still both major political parties even the Democrats are very unreliable on mm. our issue. At best, they're unreliable. At worst, they're downright obstructionists. Mm. And I don't know why. You, you, I can't figure it we, out. You know, we're all of a generation that, you know, the idea was majority rules. If you achieve a majority and you win elections, you get what you want. And and we haven't been able to get what we want, despite the fact that we have majority rule and the. Def- Despite the fact that we've won elections, one has no choice but to conclude that there are powerful interests um, at work that are, are preventing this this from happening. I don't like to get to conspiracy theory either, because I there right. needs to be a certain amount of competence for conspiracies to work. And, and, and I'm not seeing the competence. But, you know, big pharma is is an issue. OK, it's not just an issue with respect to cannabis. 75% of all prescriptions written on this earth are for Americans and we're only 4% of the population, something very, very wrong here. We're yep. all strung out on these pills. All of us are. Yep. We've got 180 million Americans on antidepressants we, that don't do anything for anybody that are scientific, scientifically proven to at best be neutral. Mm-hmm. Can't beat the placebo even. Yeah. Um, and yet people fill in, scripts, fill in those scripts, fill in those scripts, fill in those scripts and don't even get a started on opioids. So yeah. I don't really know why. It's almost both- like
2: we just don't have enough powerful people in Washington. Lobbying. Well, it's just
3: following the money. You're absolutely yeah. right. It's it's a, where the lobby is. Look at the pharma lobby versus the cannabis lobby, you know, working right. with, you know, back in the day, I was working really closely with Rob Campy and the marijuana policy project. And we have a lobbying group and we're trying to get things passed and prop 19 in California that they pulled out of and, and then went to Colorado. So I mean, the money, the difference in the, the amount of money that's going into pharma versus cannabis is like a billion fold. It's not even close.
4: Yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. I mean, look, we've got our own lobbyists, you know, a lot of people from Colorado and big MSOs and, and right. have funded the hell out of this federal mm-hmm. lobbying efforts and they have failed to move the needle. They did get a vote on the MORE Act. Um, mm-hmm. They failed to get it before the election. Um, I think if they would have held that vote before the election, the Democrats would have done much better in the House. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they would have lost the House if they had done that. So the lobbyists are getting that vote done. But that vote doesn't have it might pass. It, it might pass the lame duck session. It wouldn't pass the new Congress, probably. Yeah. And um, and that's it. We'll get a vote and then, you know, we'll be asked for more checks.
3: Exactly. It's always coming down to that. So last thing I want to, I would say on the, before I get uh, in terms of pharma and lobbying, it's, it's all about like individual components. So if you look to see what pharma is doing, you know, with the GW pharmaceutical and Epidiolex and et cetera, they're very used to an individual component. So you have this plant that's amazing. It has like, you know, somewhere around 500 different components to it. It's very difficult for pharma to wrap their, Pharmaceutical minds around how do we take this and how do we make money off that? So they said, "All right, we'll take components." And until they figure out that this is more of we can treat it as a nutraceutical, it's it's everything together. The genes of the plant, the components of the plant, combined with the genes and components of the human being. Now we have a real industry that's uh, that's regulated for quality and making sure that we have efficacy and all that stuff until that really changes in the minds of pharma and they participate in this. I don't see that pharma is going to support this in any way. And if we don't get that support, I don't think that the descheduling or rescheduling is going to happen. That's just one person's opinion. I don't know what you, what you think about that. Maybe
4: (laughs) the single molecule drugs is what, you know, the FDA approves. They don't approve any, other than single molecule drugs, right. unless it's a nutraceutical or something like that. And those basically aren't really regulated by the FDA, except with respect to claims. Right. Um, and I hope we are treated more like a nu- nutraceutical. Pseudical. We worked a lot with the um, APA, the, the Association for Herbal Products Association. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they're the ones that basically self-police uh, nutraceuticals. So um, it would be nice if we could self-police like they do, because I think we do a much better job self-policing yeah. than than the actual police do. So I, um, I mean, you know, the medical program in California was not police. We policed it, and nobody got sick. There was no vape pen crisis. There was no um, people kids ODing on edible. None of that was happening. We were policing ourselves quite effectively, yep. and industries can do this. Um, if there's enough, uh, enough trust in the ecosystem and enough checks and balances to make sure that bad actors don't act out. Um, sure. So um, I would like to see that because I think we, we actually, at least those of us that are good actors, we're, we're going to put forth products and, and expressions of the plant
3: that are going to be good for communities. Yeah, no, for sure. Agreed. All right, so I think we've given enough political insight. Yeah, let's have fun, everybody. Yeah, let's, man, let's have fun, fun, man. Let's move what the on hell? to some fun. Man, what's going on Holidays here? Holidays
4: are coming up, man.
3: I was just curious, <laughs> man. I was just kind of asking for myself, but uh, I know. You know we have other people. It's like when you got him here. It's hard to.
2: It's hard. I know. Serious exactly. <laughs> no, questions. You don't always have Andrew on the on the. Line. A blessing and a curse, I
4: guess. I know. <laughs> All right. All
3: right. So we'll, we'll go we'll go through <clears throat> our questions. All right. So the first question I have is: Describe your first experience with cannabis, if you can remember.
4: Yes. Well, the one I talk about publicly is is the first joint I shared with my brother, but I actually had an experience um, when I was 13 or 14, a couple of years before that joint experience mm-hmm. where I had an edible experience with my brother. Mm-hmm. So so there was one, I forget the circumstances that arose for me eating that edible that day. I mu- I might've been in pain or I might've just been curious or I'm not sure what it was. I think I was in the throes of adolescence and my hormones were raging pretty bad. And (laughs) and in any case, somehow I I consented to take this edible with my brother and um, he took some edibles. And and in those days, uh, this was probably, I don't know, the late seventies, early eighties. And in those days, you would trade cannabis, you would do what is known as the rounds. And and generally, you would either be dropping off weed or picking up money from people doing mm-hmm. your rounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd go to people's apartments, and, and, right. and that's how you um, d- traded cannabis in those days. So my brother took me on this great adventure while I was whacked on edibles <laughs> and oh my um, doing all these rounds. And I'll, I'll never forget, there was one guy who was uh, a video artist and... Back in the early days, he had all this video equipment. And being the teenager that I was and really quite intoxicated at that point by the time we got to this person's house a few hours later. And I was laughing. I was having a pretty good time. And um, I remember um, not only did I get to experience cannabis for the first time, but I got to experience um, adult pornography on video um, oh, that, right. this, that this guy v- had. VHS. Um, Yeah, (laughs) uh, uh, because in in those days, most of that kind of content was in magazine form. You know, we didn't have VHS tapes and and machines in our homes quite yet at that point. So it was very new to me. And I I remember it, the visuals of all that being intoxicated (laughs) was quite overwhelming. (laughs) So you Um, associate,
2: yeah, you immediately associate cannabis and being high with with sex and porn. So, of course, you, you loved it. <laughs> How could that... Or
4: just pleasure, right? Yeah, with it was, pleasure. It was it was a hedonistic experience. Yeah. Uh, my first joint experience was as much um, a wellness experience as it was right. anything else because I was in physical pain when I took that one. But this was, mm-hmm. I believe that pleasure is something that is part of our wellness profiles that we sure. all have to have. You have to enjoy life if you don't enjoy life. What are we all doing here at a certain Exactly, oh, man. Um, that was my first. That's great. Real, real I, I love
3: that you, like, so not everybody remembers, but because you anchored it to an experience and with uh, porn and you can kind of visualize the whole thing, you remember those kind of experiences much more vividly. There's a lot of experience of, uh, with cannabis. I'm like, I don't remember, but there's some that are cannabis music related is, to yeah. this. like Yeah.
4: Music. Well, or... yeah, your older brother, you know, your older brother <laughs> does things like introduces you to psychoactives and and adult yeah. um, content and yeah. um, and you know other various other um, adventures. Uh, so yeah, that's you had a cool
2: the- older. older. I, I'm the oldest, but you had a cool older brother. I wish I had an older brother that could have kind of introduced me to to stuff like that. I just had a bunch of punk ass
3: friends. Yeah, I mean, but I didn't my look brother, up to you know.
4: my, my brother could write a book about being a great older brother. He really could. <laughs> um, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm an
3: only child. So I don't have that experience. But I love to introduce people like my friends. I was the guy that always was at my house. I was introducing them to cannabis and other uh, things as well. Moving on to our uh, next question. John and I are big music people. You are uh, also, uh, one of the things that we talk about is the connection between music and cannabis. So if you can talk about what your connection is to music and cannabis, and if there's an album or or a song or something that is a go-to for you, that's a bad way of asking the question. But music and cannabis.
4: My musical journey actually coincides with cannabis, Exactly. I, I wasn't really into music until I started taking cannabis. I was an athlete. I was into sports. I was reading Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. I was studying the inner game of tennis. I was running stairs and training and, you know, doing all that was my obsession. And yeah, I guess I probably like any teenager listen to the top 40 countdown every Sunday or whatever it was back in those days with Casey Keesum. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, But I wasn't really a a, aficionado music until I immediately started taking cannabis and, 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 you know, cannabis just does that. It heightens your senses, particularly in those early sessions um, when you're first um, Mm -hmm. having external cannabinoids in your, in your body, it's quite an intense experience, and and it really heightens all the senses. So food becomes this most pleasurable thing. I'm dropping a column on that in Playboy next week. Um, nice. about cannabis and food and pleasure, and and same thing with music. Cannabis enhances the sense of sound, and and it sometimes you might just be in traffic or you might be outside without music and you'll notice the birds or the wind or, or, or different sounds more acutely um, after you take a little cannabis. Right. Um, but so my first, you know, again, my older brother was there for me. And of course he had, Mixtapes and playlists and reading lists, and you <laughs> had a whole uh, curriculum for me to. This is our uh,
3: cannabis playlist that you will. Yeah, I, I want to get to. a hold
2: of that playlist. Me too, what's, man. What's he, a must? He, what's a must listen to record?
4: The first album that I remember really connecting to was Equal Rights by Peter Tosh. It was nice. Oh, I, man. I, the, the reggae music hit me hard early on in my Look at that. Career.
2: He's got it ready to go. Yeah, wow.
4: Legalize <laughs> It. Yes. Legalize It. He is, for those listening,
2: he's showing legal. Yeah, There's it. a column called Legalize It in Greenham.
4: So that one, that one we listened to over and over and over again. And then, of course, I got turned on to the Grateful Dead pretty young, too. Uh, So, um, my freshman year of college, I think something like three weeks into the school year, my freshman year, I went to my first Grateful Dead show in Chula Vista. You know, that was, of course, a bug-eyed opening experience. Do you think because
2: that music, Peter Tosh's music, the Dead's music, was written, obviously, while they were high, they just were able to kind of plug into some sound that people who are high can also relate to? You know, I discovered that music before I even knew what marijuana was, and I liked it. At least, yeah. at least Peter Tosh. Uh, the Grateful Dead was the first concert I ever went to in my life, actually, which is amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, what is it like? They were able to kind of channel something, I think, uh, that that you recognize when you're high.
4: Yeah, and it goes all the way back to the jazz musicians, right? Yeah, Hatty Hidey Ho and and, and Reefer Man and yeah. um, the Song of the Vipers and all that the jazz musicians were the first ones that, you know, sort of got woke to what canvas does to music and sound and mm. slows things down. It isolates the different instruments, it allows mm. for more notes to be played in a given period of tempo beat rhythm or, right. or time. Uh, and so they were the first, they were the really the first ones and they, yeah. they were having a lot of fun with them. I mean, i me and my brother have studied that history quite a bit and, and the jazz musicians, were really they were inventing some of the first uh, slang and some yep. of the first rap and jive, the whole jive thing that was yep. happening um, was really, really a whole urban poetry that that was being born at that time. Um, yeah, man, cannabis gave people the kind of inside wink, you know, yep. and whether it be the reggae music, which was came from cannabis, came yep. from the yeah. Ross- couldn't
2: have it um, without
4: cannabis. Yep. Could not have made that music could not have discovered the sound as, as a creator, um, without the benefit of cannabis. So, and then, you know, you know the '80s come around and people are doing more stimulants than than cannabis, and the music yes. changed, right? That's the true. music. Changed. Suddenly,
2: it's everybody like, was doing dee, lines dee, 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 of coke dee, dee,
3: dee, dee, everywhere, dee, dee, dee. and it's dee. like, oh man, you need that, you need that stimulant. <clears throat> yeah, that's Absolutely. true. I never thought
2: about that. That's like.
3: Yeah, and John and I actually talked 80s. about last last episode. We talked about jazz, and and then in uh, that communication, uh, I think it's interesting Andrew, that you bring that up because when you play jazz, you're having a conversation right and every single time you play you play differently but you play off somebody else and if you're vibrating at the same frequency with the rest of your players you're able to have that conversation intelligently lyrically and musically and if you're not then the music doesn't sound the same so i definitely agree with you on that cannabis dictates a lot of the musical experience as well for sure
4: well just the improvisation you Mm -hmm. know Uh um improvisation i did as an actor when i was a younger man improvisation is really scary it is a horrific thing to -hmm. to walk out on stage without a script Mm -hmm. um so i think cannabis helps people chill and relax into that and you know as you as you become a more experienced performer musician you master your craft maybe you're a public speaker my brother Eats all kinds of cannabis before he goes on stage. A lot of people can't do that, right? But well, it
3: depends on your genetics too. That. Like we're, we're just talking about that, and like John, and uh, you don't mind if I disclose that you've talked about this publicly. He doesn't have the same genetic predisposition. Like uh, cannabis wouldn't affect him. He may have uh, some stress associated with that. Versus like uh, you and I, uh, I you know I don't have that kind of thing. I actually it enhances my ability to perform. Uh, but yeah. some people, it, it hinders that. We should so try doing this depends.
2: podcast Hi, I want to see if that, what, what, that, what, uh, that I, let's is.
3: do the next one. We'll, we'll share virtual joint. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll see what happens. It. Cause I know well, I, sure, I've I, never a done a you podcast an edible,
2: though. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> I, no, edible. I, I actually, <laughs> when I was a
4: performer, I couldn't go on stage stoned, especially when you're an actor on stage doing plays. There's yeah. a lot to, uh,
3: yeah too much focus which is the memory thing you have to remember and then when you're consuming very
4: precise it requires a certain amount of concentration that's just hard to to yeah it was was really hard so but now that i'm not memorizing lines i'm more speaker or i'll do a powerpoint or something like that i can't take a lot of cannabis i usually have to do a cb a one-to-one you know Um, right but when i can hit the the right cannabinoid profile before i i perform it really does relax you because performing is nerve-wracking it's an anxious experience we all have our self-conscious we all have stage fright we all experience it it's a very natural thing Mm -hmm. it's a very common thing but it doesn't feel natural and it doesn't feel common. it feels like oh my god i'm freaking out and all i can hear is my heartbeat and, and i can't concentrate yeah. Um, and so sometimes it just helps go okay hold on all right here I am I'm yeah. present all right I know what I'm doing I've done this before all right cool let's go. Yeah. Um and and then you can kind of get into a flow.
3: Yeah, it's getting the right formulation that that's right for you in the in the moment. I've never been on stage where I consumed before. I never never did that. I couldn't imagine myself like smoking a joint or or even having an adi- edible and coming out on stage and speaking, I, I would just have gaps. Uh, what what were yeah. they talking about right now? I, I would just forget. Yeah. But but the the improv is uh, if I'm improvising if i'm just having a conversation with somebody uh, john we should experiment that see how it goes because I'm maybe a little scared but we can <laughs> if try. i have that the brain fart may jump in but it definitely happens yeah no it could it should be this live much less it, it should be
2: happening it's like that video where the old the grannies do it for the first time that'll for me that'll be oh one yeah and life, then, then, then they have on the one with the
3: priest it. the rabbi and the i love dad, that one man i, I love, love it. that I love those one videos. that one is Brilliant, the best, yeah, yeah. That's one of the
4: best cannabis videos. I know, that- I love that right. one too. Wow. Great PR for um, cannabis. All
3: right, so next question is: uh, uh What has cannabis meant in your life?
4: My life didn't really start until I began to consume cannabis. Really, I was an athlete, and I I, I came from a traumatic family background. We had death in our family. Mm-hmm. One of my brother died. My parents split up. My brother ran away from home to be a revolutionary i was raised by a single mom so there was a lot of trauma that i had to deal with i deal i dealt with it with sports a lot of kids deal with their trauma with sports some of them deal with it with arts or music or or puzzles or games or whatever it might be but my my thing was sports but Sports is just not that deep a world. Um, mm. and, and if you're not going to be the next John McEnroe, you know, your, your choices for careers, you can be a gym teacher, um, you could maybe be an athletic director at a university, or mm. you could be a, ten- a, a, a tennis, tennis was my sport, yeah. you, could, you could teach. Um, those didn't move me. None of those things moved me. Being the next John McEnroe mm. moved me. Right. That seemed kind of cool. I, I <laughs> could dig that, man. You know, no problem. So I was really searching for something. And cannabis, I was going through my first identity crisis. I was having an identity crisis. Mm-hmm. And when you're 15 and you're having an identity crisis, it's almost suicidal level depression. You're just like, mm-hmm. I just lost the thing. My dream, I'm going to die. <laughs> that, I mean, the teenage brain is just that way, right? It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. you're either... <laughs> or you're. And I was depressed. And and so that's when my brother handed me that joint. He saw I was yeah. in pain. He saw I was in physical, emotional pain. He's like, man, if you don't take this joint, I'm really worried. You're gonna go jump off a bridge, dude. Mm. Uh, and thankfully a little voice inside me, I think it was that voice that was looking for a new identity, was looking for his new life. There was a search, there was like this passionate search that I was looking for and then the joint was there. The cannabis was there and once I felt the effects of the cannabis. Not only did I feel physical relief from my back injury, yeah, but this thing called hope descended upon me and I'm like, "Hold on. All right, sports is over. Fuck it, man. I'm going to go be an actor. I'm going to go I'm going to sell weed. I'm going to get weed from my brother. I'm going to sell weed in high school. I'm going to I'm going to meet all these cool. I'm going to start Asking girls out on dates, and you know, I was very shy before this, and I didn't know how to ask a girl out on a date. And all of a sudden, all these things happened. And and of course, as soon as I started selling weed in high school, I became very popular. (laughs) I I tell you on that. And then, you know, um, I started going out on dates with girls, and you know, I started to fall in love with the theater and the politics of cannabis. I started to embrace and activism and I had a great model, my older brother. So I was like, well, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be my
3: older brother. That's what I'm going to be. And so cannabis really gave me my life at that time. It's, it's so beautifully said. I, I, I'm i a big believer in the universe and vibrational energy. There's things that when we're open to them to receive them, they come into our lives. So I think, you know, as hokey as this may sound, at that moment, wherever you were vibrating, that cannabis came into your life because you were open and that's where what you needed in, in the moment. I think some people close their eyes and don't see those things, but I think you were open to that opportunity coming to your life. So that's yeah, I'll never
4: forget things. the weed. It was Mexican, it was, you know, <laughs> of <laughs> course,
3: it was acapulco gold or something. No, it
4: wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> even <laughs> <laughs> that good. Uh, uh, it was like a, mid, right. a solid upper, a lot of seeds. Grade. You're
3: picking out the stems and, and seeds. seeds, yeah,
4: yeah. And, and well, you know, my brother never smoked anything that wasn't pretty good, yeah, uh, that's right, good. You mom, had a good. Of course. Um, but, but it was still, it was Mexican. It wasn't California sense of Mia. It wasn't the right. Northern Cali. I mean, I was in Washington DC. We didn't, it was hard to find Cali weed there. Yeah, um, sure. you could get stuff from New York, you know, sometimes. Uh, so I, I, I can still taste that. Drink. Oh man, that's beautiful.
3: Yeah. John and I are both East coast. I'm Philly. He's New York. So we know we used to get BC yeah, weed. Worst. I was like, Oh my God, that's kind, but we're getting yeah. BC stuff out there. Don't yeah. Worry. I used to Cali run those BCs
4: through, uh, through the Indian land
3: up there on the New York uh, yeah, border. I've done, I've done a share of my own uh, in in Philly too. So I was uh, one of those popular guys who uh, sold weed as well. Uh, yeah. All right, so I have a bonus question. Last one, it's kind of uh, weird we, uh, we asked, but can you describe uh, what your room looked like growing up? If you remember?
4: Um, I think my dorm room was probably more interesting. As in high school. I did. I, I lived in a small apartment with my dad and stepmom. And my room was the family room that turned into a bedroom at night when everyone else went to bed. Uh, so it. It wasn't was was there a Mac and
2: Ro- I somehow, I guess there would be a Mac and poster up there though. Sounds- uh, yeah. Yeah. There was definitely <laughs> some
4: tennis memorabilia all around. <laughs> yeah. um, but my dorm room was more interesting by, by right. uh, and so my dorm room, I was selling weed out of the dorms. I brought a half pound of weed with me to California when I went to college and, uh, and, and one of the first things I did was go to that Grateful Dead show. And at that show, I bought all these cool psychedelic posters and all, right. and, um, all this stuff from my dorm room. And I put the posters up. And then I made my own, I, I made these signs, because I went to um, college in Orange County in 1985. Uh, yeah. So it was, I was like the lone rebel uh, with a cause on campus. Mm-hmm. And I'd write all these little signs. I'll never forget one of them. I'd make them in magic markers and all these different colors. And one of them was, there's more to life than short hair and striped ties. There uh, you go. Uh, uh, <laughs> in the 80s, everybody had that short right. hair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, Striped ties. And I'd have all these little activist signs up. So when people came over to my dorm room and bought weed or smoked weed, they'd have this whole experience of counterculture uh, all around. And uh, for some reason... The, my first roommate flunked out of school, and I don't know. I don't know. They, they couldn't find <laughs> anyone to move in with me, so um, I had the dorm room to myself that first year, and it was quite a cool experience. To have yeah. that was the first space I had domain and control over decorating, right? And, That's cool. Um, and so it was. It was fun to pretend that I was. I love you know, it. Black black
3: light, lava lamp. Oh,
4: yeah. We didn't have the lava lamp because I was a poor, hungry, starving student, but we definitely had the black light, man. Sure. Got it. The black light I I stole from the college. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, uh,
3: (laughs) I had one of those too.
4: The triple beam I also stole from.
3: (laughs) I I stole mine from (laughs) the lab too. I had the same thing. I I took mine from the lab in high school.
4: (laughs) Oh, wow. That's awesome. Those follies of youth, right? Yep. Um, yep. Uh, uh, but I love my alma mater or Chapman. I'm, I'm you know, I you'll get the money back, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um and and today my house you know, there's the sour diesel. Yeah, I saw it booster oh, yeah. behind All me right. and um, my house is like this giant altar that my wife and I live in and that's awesome. Art Beautiful. and artifacts. You do a tour sometime yeah. of your house. Andrew's <laughs> house.
3: Yeah. Andrew uh, Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you? Where can people hear? You? I mean, I know you do this uh, four hundred and twenty uh, thing on a uh, oh on yeah, AndrewD'Angelo and dot com. Uh, Once you uh, tell everybody where people can find yeah, and yeah my about. website's
4: andrewdangelo.com. dot I also have Instagram Andrew under slash D'Angelo. <laughs> Same with Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm like the easiest guy in the whole world to find. And please. Of all my websites, check out lastprisonerproject.org. That's the one that I want
3: people to go to the most. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Again. Thank you, Andrew, so much for this, this doing so this and fun. all you've
2: done for for cannabis over the years. Yeah, I know you really, really are. appreciate it. People don't realize how important people like you and your brother were to the whole movement. Still really, are.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well,
4: well, I appreciate the appreciation, uh, gentlemen. Yeah. And thank you for everything you do, too. And see you next time. All right, yeah, brother. Take care, man. Right. Peace.
2: He's great. Always Amazing. a great interview and um such an interesting guy, you know. That's such a power family in the cannabis space, the D'Angelo family. You know, all these sure. people who are coming into the business now are just learning about it, don't realize like how important people like Steve D'Angelo and Andrew were early on um to even make it as legitimate as it is yeah today. Well, I think
3: Steve <clears throat> Steve gets a, a lot of notoriety because he, he even had uh there's a character there was like a Steve like character on the show called Disjointed where yep. I I worked on him for a little bit. So he, you know, because he's got a distinct look with the two braids. Like yeah, he's got a look. Andrew's like, them, but Andrew's definitely. Andrew's yeah.
2: like the less sort of hippie of the two, kind of like more <laughs> of the, the mainstream guy. Uh, yeah. Super nice guy. I really like him. Yeah, So cool. Man, wow. I'm, that's good interview. Interesting interview.
3: I'm super tired today, man. I, so I had a, a presentation I had to do in the EU and the UK. So that was in the middle of the night, early morning. I was in Brazil. So it's just like been a whirlwind, but it's, it's amazing to see the world like uh, the EU highest court ruled that CBD is not a narcotic and so which is a big, that's big, a big deal thing. Yeah. Because now they're going to be able to have uh, CBD promoted throughout Europe because it's not well, even in, in the UK. So I think like seeing all this stuff and with the stuff that's going on in Brazil and South America uh, you know, besides the election, it's it's really, really amazing uh, where where this is going. I don't know where it's going to end up, but it's definitely going. I mean, to it be
2: can't better. go back. I always feel like it's all moving forward. There's not like, unless like some tyrant takes over the world and says like, we must ban <laughs> all, you know, I mean, the momentum is so the other way. Um, yeah. It's just frustrating because it's not quite there yet. And uh, I think for some of us who are in the business of it, you just see sort of like some of the the stumbling points. Yep, we've had even problems with advertisers um, not wanting to be associated with cannabis content. It's just crazy in this day and age. But you know we forget that it's a Schedule One drug federally yeah. in this country. Still, that hopefully yeah. will change with the new administration. I'm I'm confident that there'll be some changes. Yeah.
3: So I wanted to talk about. I don't know if you're if, uh, if you're prepared to talk about this or not. The best and worst hip-hop movies ever made
2: i'm very i am prepared (laughs) i mean i'm prepared in in as much as what i can remember because some of these hip-hop movies i saw when i was really little and have never seen again and probably never will see again but there is quite a canon of hip-hop movies both documentary and narrative movie movies fiction movies um, well, I'd love let's, to hear let's your separate,
3: life. let's talk about movies and then documentaries as two supper because I, for sure. I, there's so many amazing documentaries. I don't remember all of them. There's oh, yeah. one with a uh, Fab Fry Freddy that, uh, I just watched not too long ago. I, I even forgot the name of it, but it was amazing about the history of cannabis and jazz. So I, I'll save that for a second. Let me tell you the reason why I even thought about this. Uh, so I was, uh, on YouTube and there was a, there was a song, uh, I was watching breakdance videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whatever. It was just my, my <laughs> You're just going down thing. a rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah I was just One like rabbit hole with uh, b boys. And there was a, I have
0: to send you my,
2: I will. Oh man, I could probably play it on this episode. <laughs> I have a video of myself break dancing when I'm 16 years old. That's on YouTube that I would oh, like, you, you have to share you with you. You
3: have to share that. Okay. But I was, you know, there was a, a B boy world championship going on. Uh-huh. So I, so I was watching that and they have uh they have B boys from all over the world. And so it's just amazing. And it, the difference between, the breakdancing from back in the 80s to what it is now, night and day. Oh, I mean, yeah, These guys different. are unbelievable. Do you think it's shit. better than the risks that they're taking? Like for somebody, and this is a segue to the movie, for somebody in the 80s to do like a head spin, mm-hmm. that was a very unique thing. Yeah. These guys not only do a head spin, they can actually push their bodies on their head and slide across. Like the, the shit that they're doing, the acrobatics yeah. uh, are. Unbelievable. I'm not saying it's better or worse because back in the day, like in New York, the New York breakdance crews—I mean, wow—they were amazing. Crazy they legs,
2: yeah. The breaks, the Rock Steady crew, and the yeah, they were incredible. Guys. I mean, that was my love and inspiration when I was younger. But we can get into that. I well, love breakdancing. So
3: that was my inspiration too. I think and we talked movie, about this. We
2: were both in breakdance crews, right? Exactly. Yeah, two Jews in breakdance crews. Yeah.
3: Yep. <laughs> but the movie that inspired me was Beat Street. Mm-hmm. That was the hip-hop movie for me. Beat Street breakdown!
1: Beat Street, the king of the beat. You see her rocking that beat from across the street. And <laughs> Is a lesson too because uh, you can't let streets beat
3: you. I watched that movie so many times, you know, Beat Street the King of the Beat and uh, I yep. mean, the music in that and just the drama. This is the difference. This is where I kind of came up with this subject. You have a movie like Beat Street that is dramatic and it has Ray Don Chang and, and there's a there's a love triangle and there's a death and like it's a real movie. And then you turn on Breaking and yeah. I'm like, well, That's what scary. the hell is that? I, I'm not sure if this is the best, uh, my, my number one best movie, but it's the most memorable one. For best hip-hop movies, I also had like 8 Mile and Hustle and & Flow. Mm-hmm. I know there, everybody probably considers them uh, great movies uh, um, on like Rotten Tomatoes, but the one that made the biggest impact on me is uh, definitely uh, Beat Street.
2: I think B Street was the first movie I saw that really, like, reflected what I thought hip-hop really was at that time. Like, there was all these Hollywood concoctions of, right. of like, you're talking, like, Break-In, break 2, one of the worst movies ever made. That's on my worst. That's movies. my worst,
3: yeah. number one. Uh, uh, electric Boogaloo.
2: Yeah, Electric <laughs> Boogaloo, and it all takes place in Los Angeles. When he no was breakdancing
3: on the ceiling, I was just like, what the yeah, fuck Yeah, that is was going when it had
2: jumped. That. We thought breakdancing had jumped the shark at that point. Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: you're the loser, punk. Comrade,
4: you have just entered a battle zone.
1: It's time for us to find out who's really the best with the freshest crew. No time for words, but you with that. All there is left is pure combat.
2: But you know, when I was coming up, coming up as a kid back in the day it was very hard to find you know there was no YouTube right so it was very hard to find breakdancing like it was hard to see it like you would have to go to you know you'd have to see a movie like Beat Street where where there was actual breakdancing in it I remember there was like I think I talked about this once there was like one movie you know some of the Michael Jackson videos featured some breakdancers you had like I remember in all night long's video by (laughs) Lionel Richie there was like one like five second segment where this this kid is popping and I was like oh my god I watched it over and over to try to figure (laughs) out what he was doing but I don't even know where I was learning the moves because it was so hard to find them. And unless you lived at like in the South Bronx or something and it was like on the yeah. street corner, you know, you didn't you didn't know how to. So those movies were actually very important at the time. And that one was one that really reflected what was going on. So I don't know if it stands up. I haven't seen Beat Street in years. I,
3: I, I should... was watching it. It stands up and I'll tell you why. Because it gives you everything you talk about. When we talk about docs and hip hop culture and it all started with uh, graffiti and DJs. And this is yeah. exactly what this movie captures. It captures all the graffiti, all the trains. And it brought me back to, you know, New York. I was more Brooklyn than Bronx. I did mm-hmm. live in the Bronx for a little bit with my my grandparents. But it brought me back to the trains and yeah, watching the, train the trains uh, on, uh, you know, go above. And they're all graffiti. And if you find that one train that's nice and fresh, man, it's not going to last that way forever. No. But that was that was the culture. That was a was part
2: a, of it, tagging. It was a part of the whole culture. It was the art, the music, the dancing—I mean, that was yeah. what I loved so much about it—is that it was just like a whole culture, and it was like an underground culture that was very specific at that time to the East Coast. Then it, now it just seems like you know, hip hop is such a mainstream thing, it um, but it, but it wasn't at that time, and it was really interesting. And I I could I tend to be more fascinated with the early day the movies and the and the documentaries that focus on the early days of hip hop because I, I guess maybe because that was when I was so influential in my own life, but. Um, yep. I just, to go back in that time, I don't think we realized, you know, what we were kind of experiencing. It just, it probably seemed just like a fad during that time, but it ended mm-hmm. up not being a fad at all. It was like a fad. Yeah. And yeah, it's something sure. that probably couldn't happen now, like with the way the internet is. And you couldn't have such a regional, specific kind of movement happening like that now. Th- they we're too connected. There would, it would, it wasn't a secret, you know, like it was kind of almost like a secret world, at least for me. Well, I large.
3: don't know. I, I don't know. I think, you know, like... And I'm not not a fan specifically, but like BTS, kind mm-hmm. of the the Korean that sort of started as a as a that's true. A like the
2: whole woman. like K-pop thing. I mean, we don't K-pop, live in Korea, yeah. so I don't I don't know how that plays out. It's interesting how Americans have have found K-pop as like their sort yeah. of. I don't get that's again like uh, beyond, way getting, beyond my my ability it, to what, get it. But it it's has fine, its own but, culture. It has its own stars and exactly. You know, it's very but it's very commercial.
3: Hip-hop was Well, it commercial. became commercial, right? Yeah. Like it became, I don't think anything Maybe starts a start. commercial and then somebody picks it up. It's the same thing with hip-hop, right? So you have, uh, we're talking about docs just bringing it like, if you watch the the one that Ice-T did, the Art of Rap, right? Mm-hmm. I forget, it, it's called something else, but it's the art of something, the art of rap. You look at the history of it as mm-hmm. you go through and he has- all these rappers uh, doing freestyle. You can tell, man, like who's really good, right? right. You can tell that by doing, when it gets in the machine that it is now. And it's, yeah, uh, it's, it gets business, ruined. It's, yeah, it's ruined. And it's like, okay, well, you know, who, uh, it's the same producers, the same people, and it's mass produced and it's, it's big business. And it's no longer this whole, there's no movement with it. It's already mainstream.
2: I so, remember to me, I think one of the pivotal moments that was bad for hip hop, was when Run-DMC released Walk This Way with Aerosmith because right, yeah it's interesting I love Run-DMC and I love Aerosmith but when you put them together that was like a weird jump the shark and you know and I say jump the shark didn't really jump the shark because hip hop continued and, and in fact that was the early days of the greatest but that was a time when hip hop could have gone in a terrible direction because all of a sudden they were doing these like mashups with rock and roll and it just didn't really work at least I didn't I I don't know if you what you think about that rap. It's like one of my least favorite raps in the world is Walk This Way. And yet, I, I, lo- I love like Walk This Way, the song. Yeah. Like I the liked Caros it.
3: Song. I liked it because it was Rick Rubin's one of my heroes. So yeah. I, I loved that he took a chance. Yes, it was a little bit cheesy. Aerosmith did not want to do this at all. Neither yeah. run DMC. I heard uh, you know, DMC talking about this. Uh, oh, they didn't want to do it. They, they didn't want to show up. They didn't want to do that either. Nobody wanted to do it. But the importance of it was that it allowed the mainstream into the culture and sort of said, it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, yes, whatever you feel about the song itself, I really think it was a, an important pivotal it moment. It was a pivotal
2: moment. It wasn't the first time a white person rapped. Um, we were trying <laughs> to think about the first pop song that had a white person rapping might have been Blondie and Rap. Blondie, yeah. It was yeah, Blondie. It was rapper, Blondie.
3: <clears throat> but sure. anyway,
2: that was a little cooler to me. No, I actually did a whole podcast on "Walk This Way" on my Right About Now podcast because um, I'm fat, and there was a book about it just last year. And I found a video. Somebody sent me a video from MTV, sort of lost fit footage of Run DMC and Aerosmith, and it's just like, first of all, they're you know they're like 18 or 19 years old at that time. Yeah. The last thing they want to do is with a bunch of these old white rockers like talking to these guys. They had nothing in common with these guys, and they were trying yeah. to teach them. It was fascinating to watch the dynamic. Yeah, Daryl didn't want to do it.
3: Like he, hate, I think he yeah, gave yeah. a whole interview on, on Broken Record, Rick Rubin, mm-hmm. uh, that he really didn't want to do that. And like they were trying to push him and uh, you know and run and uh, they I mean, to it, was it. It, it was a marketing
2: brilliant. It was a brilliant stroke of genius. It probably made Run DMC put them on the next level, but for sure, in terms of their coolness factor, it was not. Not cool at that time. Yeah. All right. So well, that-
3: We should talk about Run DMC, one of our shows, I'll wear, uh, I'll wear a shirt. By the way, what are you wearing a shirt today? So this is a really embarrassing. I
2: realized about half an hour before the show <laughs> that I didn't have a shirt on and I was going to run upstairs and my wife, has, has she does her therapy out of our room and uh, she's a therapist and she does her Zoom and so I couldn't get in there because somebody was probably telling her a horrible story. So I was so bummed because I had a shirt I wanted to wear. So I'm wearing nothing. I'm wearing a really cool vintage Adidas uh, shirt. But it's not cool. like it's, it doesn't say anything interesting. So what do you got? So
3: I'm wearing a shirt. And the reason I'm wearing a shirt because I was uh, I was I was looking at some T-shirts um, like on eBay. And I started seeing some of my shirts that I have mm-hmm. are hundreds and hundreds of dollars. No way. And I was like, what? There's a whole movement. I don't know if you know about this. I was talking to my daughter. There's a whole movement about this uh, in vintage hip hop and rock shirts. Oh, wow. The wearing them. And I saw I, I, I saw one mine. of my dramatic wise shirts on sale for seven hundred dollars. Holy crap! And I saw this shirt specifically for two hundred and fifty.
2: But it has to be the original. Look so at one that! Of my original oh, Cypress Hill. Cypress, my is that from Cypress back Hill. in the day, or is it just that a is logo? from
3: back in the day? Wow. I got this uh, shirt in nineteen ninety one. Wow! And uh, I don't even believe I still fit in it. I
2: can't believe that you uh, kept a shirt from nineteen ninety one and it isn't faded into uh, dust.
3: It's got it's got holes in it and stuff. Yeah, and I think that's so. Well, you it could meat. probably
2: sell that in Japan for a pretty penny.
3: Yeah, these are not for sale. I'm keeping them. But I was uh, I was going through. Man, I had when I was uh, moving out of my house with my when I was going through my divorce. I left so many shirts because I just went with a suitcase and I asked her what happened to those and she said she gave them to uh, uh, you know Goodwill or whatever. So there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of vintage shirts that somebody may have received through me, but I uh, enjoy.
2: I mean, I have like some great concert t-shirts from like we talked about going to the police. And can you yeah. imagine if I had saved some of those concert t-shirts from, God damn it, why didn't I think my, about that? Well, my friend- my, What my do I have now like, that I should save and not get rid of? I'm looking yeah, around definitely. my desk.
3: He, so my friend, my, he, mm-hmm. every single time we've ever gone to a show and he's been doing it all his life, he buys a shirt at the show. And I was like, man, why are you going to spend $40, $50 on a shirt when I can get it you know, afterwards? But now he's got a, a whole library of all these shirts from all so these cool. shows. And yeah, he, I'm sure he can, you know, if he ever's in a pinch, he can get rid of them. Hey, by the way, did you ever uh, say your uh, best and worst uh, hip hop movie?
2: The only one that you didn't mention that I like is Straight Out of Compton. I like yeah, that. One. Yeah. I didn't love it. I, I had Eight Miles Straight Out of Compton, Hustle and Flow. Um, and then for my doc and Beat Street. And Wild Style is also good. Um, I love that. And then I had for my favorite documentaries. I really like this um, documentary that's on Netflix right now called Hip Hop Evolution. Um, yeah, it's really cool because he takes it the evolution of hip hop. He goes way back from the earliest days to like current, and he each yeah. each season is kind of about a different. And it goes in. He'll be like, "Let's do the Native tongues. Uh, let's do what hap- was happening in the Dirty South." And let's so it's it, yeah. It's he goes like, from
3: region to region, yeah, region yeah, to region. Well,
2: it's really interesting. I mean, I don't like a lot of the regions but i didn't really know much about like for example new orleans hip-hop and mm-hmm. you know he goes and he finds all the the best artists and
3: and texas too the texas, texas was right the one houston
2: that was was, was, houston was yeah huge. because
3: because i know ghetto boys but i'm like yeah. who else is in texas but there's I a whole know.
2: thing happening you know that the happened i don't know if it, well i mean travis scott travis scott
3: i mean no like, you're talking about way back in the day I, I'm, I'm talking about a sound like travis yeah. scott is a he's pop he, yeah yeah, he definitely has uh, the sound, and he's uh, he's definitely the, you know the most popular rapper out there right now. What I was saying is that every region had their own unique sound, mm-hmm. and and that Texas Houston sound to me was Scarface. You know that was the uh, yep. Boys, and I'm like, but I didn't realize that the whole there was a whole other movement there. They had, but it was a unique sound and everywhere, like the you know the Dirty South with the outcast and all those guys and the right. CMO. Uh, they had their own set And
2: then it's St. Louis, like Nelly. And yeah, everybody started having their own thing. I think MTV enabled that. And everybody, you know, it. it of course, I'm still very biased because I like the stuff that came out of the East Coast the most. And we've talked yeah, about this too. a lot. But I think if me you're growing too. up in New Orleans or in Houston or even Missouri during that time, you probably like that kind of music the most. I don't know,
3: what? man. I still think the East was the influence of everyone until... There was a South movement. There definitely was, and they, it still it really is. is.
2: Yeah, it's great. In fact, great New York movie. is really not the epicenter of hip hop anymore.
3: Well, I don't. I don't know who's coming out of the East anymore. Like there I mean, there's
2: pa- Panda, who's a designer. Uh, you know Cardi, I'm a. I'm Cardi B is out of New York. Nicki Minaj. I mean, there's some pretty big names, but it's not like it was. You mentioned Beat Street. There was a record store in Brooklyn called Beat Street that I used to go to when I Mm -hmm. lived in New York in the 90s. And it was like I had to – it was in a really bad part of Brooklyn, but it was the greatest record store I'd ever seen. And they would always have all these kind of – this is the kind of thing, like, I wish I'd saved them. They have records, you know, without even labels. They were just people, like, laid down tracks, and then they'd sell them at Beat Street. That was, like, when hip-hop was really still very exciting coming out of New York. There was still a lot of underground stuff, a lot of, like, not-signed artists New York does not feel to be like the center of hip hop anymore. Yeah, I feel like it's in Atlanta. <laughs> really, it's in Texas. It's yeah. yeah I, I really think uh, even the LA, Coast, LA Kendrick. Lamar, yeah,
3: LA because yeah. I, it, what I see in a, you know, going into studios and I, I know some artists and going in the studios and, but it's, there's a similarity to the sound. That's mm-hmm. the issue. Oh, uh, And I was in my deep fishing state of trying to find Tiny Desk concerts. Right. And uh, I love them. I love, I love, I love. But now they have Tiny Desk from home because of obviously from COVID. And I saw Billie Eilish and I'm like, uh, and I was watching my daughter and she get, has a cardboard cutout. I thought she was in, in the Tiny Desk studio, but they did, her and her brother did the cardboard cutout of the Tiny Desk studio in her home. So she has the bookshelves and all the other things, and then she did this whole thing in her home that looked like a tiny desk. So I went in my deep tangent of tiny desk concerts, and I started looking through that. I don't want to say anything else, like let's play the track first, and then I'll give you how I came about and what I found and how I found it.
1: Wish you could buy time, but it's my time Thoughts against I blasphemy. it's like a vice crime I roll them thick and I ignite mine I don't need to get high, I just get equally back in my right mind I'm getting lethal with these nice lines creeping through your speakers, catch you sleeping like a thief off in the night time Young dimes, now you niggas correspond Bitch, kick the fuck out of the tracks and John Claus shit Get the fuck out of the streets, nigga, I bomb shit Shit ain't no good no more Y'all on y'all shit uh, Fuck is your conscience Testing me is nonsense, the whole city is mine I'm the best off in my conference kind Ain't feeling me fine That
3: was dope. Tell us a little bit about that. Alright, so it's Mac Lib. So here's here's how I came across this So I was watching the Tiny Desk concert And I came across Mac Miller. Incredible. You know, I mean, what a show he did on Tiny Desk. It's a shame. We'll link to
2: that in the description show, show notes. Yeah, he,
3: unfortunately, you know, he passed. But I really didn't get into Mac Miller that much. But this illuminated for me a couple of things. Number one, that he was doing this thing with, uh, with Mad Lib, calling it Mac Lib, him and, and Mad Lib together. And then he had Thundercat. So Mac Lib is them with Thundercat. So the thing that really, really like blew my mind, I was like, well, he's doing this live. And that's why we're talking about new hip hop. He's, it's not really new, but it's a new way to be able to use real instruments, real bands and real amazing musicians like Thundercat and then be able to rap over that. And as a producer, Mac Lib produced this guy, Freddie Gibbs. And so the track is by Freddie Gibbs, who I really think has amazing flow. Produced by Maclib, Madlib, uh, with Mac Miller, featuring Thundercat on bass. For those of you who don't know Thundercat, I urge you to really, really check out Thundercat. Man, it's like this the guy best. just jams, 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 badass. So that's my track. I'm glad you enjoyed it.
2: I loved it. Very cool. Okay, so I'm just going to play my song here, and then I will tell you a little history. I don't know as much of the history of this other than... My own personal history, so when there's like a hum, here we go.
1: Don't say sticks and stones, they might break your bones, but the na millimeter it will bore your dome. I'm talking about the tote tagging, (laughs) the body bagging, and the (laughs) dying, mama's are crying, casket buying. Who me dying leave my family crying? I don't know what caused them bloodbath and showers. Send me commissary mother, them flowers. Thoughts of sorter, I believe leaving my daughters. Hours and hours of fears running through my mind as I pick up the Zig-9. Beef slots with the shove, then ends with the shovel. And standing on your corner reminiscent of you, but your ass is out and you're dead and gone. So who'd you rather be, the murdered or the murderer? got me stressed, I got my tech and my vest, then I sing who job bless, let no man curse. curse, but one of us can leave here tonight in the hopes but we'll be tried by 12, and fertilizing daisies, crying, mamas and cousins and crying babies, due to the fact that death is a must. ashes to ashes and dust to dust, it's getting bust for in guard with trust, so if you're coming to my town and try to slow the dough down, you must be casket bound, cause I'd rather be tried by 12 than counting by 6. I saw my name in the book at your funeral. The zigs on my hip with that extra clip. Cause I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by 6. Six. Sand Saturday right. night and that we like East to party. So it's a black So we might get your body
2: early uh, Sunday morning. Don't really wanna East Eastlapbook Project, tried by 12. So my story with that song is I was going to Beat Street one day. <laughs> this is all coming full circle. I went to Beat Street and that song was blasting in the sound system and I went up to the D de- they had a like a live DJ and I said what the hell is that and he's like it's east flatbook project he gave it to me it was like on an unknown label I've never really heard it anywhere else I don't like play it on the radio I just think it's it's like the Wu-Tang song that they didn't record obviously very inspired by Wu-Tang with the Asian beat. oh yeah what did you sure. think did you like it
3: I liked it I love the the uh the bass line it's like, yeah mm. Do- Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, i like that man. it's it's it great good. it's got and a the flow was good it sounded like a uh, you know native tongue type of uh yeah yield uh, to it, it it's like that. you can
2: tell you know that style of rapping was very popular at that time and i love the content i'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by six that is oh, a, that is a oh, great line how the hell did they come up with that line that's the best
3: the the thing is you can actually understand what they're saying unlike a lot of uh, hip hop yeah
2: there's uh, no there's that no auto tuning like, oh, the old guys like
3: we are rapping in day back in the day you know it was so great but it's it really I, I talk to my daughter about it all the time like i don't understand what some of the guys are saying i have to go look but it's at so funny cuz i watched like
2: you can watch the video for that song and i realize it was recorded like 20 25 years ago and to me it feels brand new and maybe that's just because i was a kid or i was in my, my 20s when it came out but it, it just doesn't feel old to me it doesn't feel dated to me you know my son loves that hip-hop but i guess you know yeah. it's funny because i feel like he and your daughter and my son look at that music it's like the way we look at you know m- music that came out of the 60s <laughs> like, whether you look at the yeah the blues the bur- music
3: yeah or like blues <laughs> like the birds are like, like, old- like oh my god that's freaking old man i will do a whole blues thing i started already building this up uh, so I will do a blues thing. They give you some modern blues like Black Keys, Gary Clark Jr., those kind of guys. Uh, we'll, we'll get you converted over. All right, <clears> I love <throat> it. Kind of, well, I love it. My daughter's uh, she she'll listen to some of the old school stuff, but she's into Drake and and Travis Scott. And well, all I mean, it,
2: you would think it would you know. I mean, if a kid wasn't into what's new, then you'd almost be like, "What's going on?" I mean, we were into what was new. But well, yeah, I mean, it's a little... some,
3: some, I think, I think it was a lot of, uh, I listened to a lot of old music uh, when I was, I, I grew up, you know, listening to Beatles and, the and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin that's true. and that was... Sabbath and all that stuff. So that's, that's, that was cool. only like 10
2: years old at that time,
3: but yeah, I, well, I was, I was before my time. I mean, the Beatles, uh, you're looking yeah. at the sixties, right, right. Know, that's true. But she does have a unique, interesting taste. She listens to a lot of singer songwriters mm. and she introduced me to a lot of singers she's a singer songwriter herself and she introduces me to a lot of you know, especially female and uh, we went to see georgia smith mm-hmm. they were like who the hell is georgia smith man amazing she's right. so good what an amazing voice to hear somebody not auto-tuned who can actually sing and play like alicia keys type of, of style and then uh, we went to see rex orange county the whole arena was all teenage girls basically and right Me there and they're freaking <laughs> that's like th- welcome th- to my I'm life like, yeah but i'm like okay well this kid he looks like he's playing in his bedroom and he's playing like a casio keyboard and creating this music and you know my daughter's connecting to this i find it uh, interesting so uh, very very wide musical uh taste but she's definitely connecting i can see the connection to uh talent basically that's what i'm saying so it's not yeah. always like mass-produced uh studio music there it's that unique ability to be able to write a song and create, by the way, there's a show, Songland. Songland, it's here in LA. I mean, the ability of these people to write, rewrite the song, reproduce the song. It's amazing. In the end, whatever song they choose, they record and they make actual hits out of them. So to see this process, the point I'm trying to make is talent is still alive. It's there, it does need a little refinement And to have these people that are so skilled, because if you watch the process, so somebody will come out and they'll perform and they like, oh, your lyrics are a little bit off. It doesn't make as much sense. They rewrite the lyrics. They say, you have a hook. How can we make this into a song that will connect? And they do it on the fly. They'll change the rhythm of it. They'll change the melody of it on the fly. And these people are so incredibly talented and they're able to take the song, remassage it, repurpose it, still find the heart end of what the writer was trying to convey and make it specific to the individual artist. So they wouldn't make it the same for Usher as they would for Boyz II Men, as they would for another artist is on the show. And I watch it with my daughter. That's the the other point I'm trying to make, because uh, she learns from that. How do you write a song? What's the structure of writing a song? And I think that that art has been getting lost a little bit in all the mass produced uh, you know, music that's out there. But there is a light at the end of this tunnel because there is so much talent that's coming out of different places, uh, you know, Memphis and other places that they're they're just writing songs. And when they're getting into that lab and are allowed to work with somebody super talented and be able to take what you're putting together, it's already there. It has most of the pieces, but just add that secret sauce. That's what I think, you know, the. I have hope for the future of music yeah. looking at that
2: you know you talking about this has giving me an idea that maybe we should end every one of these shows with a a personal recommendation from pop culture that you know something that we 've read or listened to or seen and something you know to give our listeners a little uh, suggestion like i hadn 't heard about Songland, so now i 'm going to check it out because there are so much i mean there's so much stuff to watch right now that it 's kind of hard to keep up with what 's going on, so sometimes people are looking for recommendations. If I could make a recommendation that has absolutely nothing to do with music. Um, and we've made a lot of recommendations anyway on this show. Yeah. Uh, But have you watched Ted Lasso yet?
3: I did, yeah. It's, uh, I find that show, like Jason Sudeikis is so good. He's so And good. he's so sarcastic too. But in this role, anyway, go ahead. Do you so like I did it? Watch it? I do like it, yeah. I okay. think it's really, really good. I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of episodes. I think I only saw like three uh, because I on Apple it's, TV.
2: Yeah, it's on Apple TV. I recommend it. I have actually trying to get Jason Sadakis on my podcast to talk about it. I think it's a perfect anecdote to the kind of craziness that's going on in the world right now, and it's it's a really nice thing to watch before you go to bed because, you know, if you're like me, you're just so stressed out by what's going on in the world. It's like a positive, happy show, and it works. It's like it's the stupidest premise in the world. It's basically this American (laughs) football coach is brought to Europe to coach a a soccer team, a football team, as they say it in their country, and... You think, oh, this is such a dumb premise. Like, who, you know, like, and then, and, and, the freaking thing works. I don't know how they pulled it together. I think it's mainly because he's so good, but they also have cast it really well. And it's just like a happiest, feel good show, and uh, makes you kind of feel good about humanity again. Yeah. So I recommend that. That's that'll be yeah, my he, parting shot here.
3: He's incredible, and I definitely recommend that show too. He's incredible in everything he does. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, uh, his style of comedy too. But he definitely plays a little bit of a different role in this one. For me, I have. Uh, I, I well, you know recommended Songland, so you already, we
2: already got I, one in there for you. Oh, okay.
3: So I shouldn't, yeah. I shouldn't. You're, recommend no, you can,
2: anymore. you can keep going. I mean, I. You want to save it for next episode?
3: No, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll make the recommendation. Yeah,
2: uh, every, every, we are going to make our recommendations. This is our second segment that we've done. Uh, <laughs> I like it. We're, you're, you guys are watching the process of how a show comes together. This is what Howard Stern and Robin did back in the day. They kept Exactly. Trying. It's
3: it's that ADD moment, man. We're like, hey, let's just <laughs> let's do it. it. They,
2: kept no they kept trying. They kept Exactly. They just kept coming up with ideas. This is how stand-ups come up with their material. You know, I like this recommendations at the end of the show. Like, I'm going to go watch Songland. It doesn't have to be something that we haven't seen. Uh, this is really yeah. for our, our, our listeners. You might have seen, like you saw Ted Lasso. So it doesn't, I'm not yeah. saying that we have to find something that we've never heard before and I'll do it for everything. I'll even try to do it for books because I have okay. to write a lot of books for my work. Me
3: too. I, I do a lot of, I, I do a lot of audible books. So oh, I, good. Yeah. I love this segment. Let's, let's talk about music because we already do yeah. that. A book and a, a show or or movie. Okay. And we'll make that recommendation. So I'll leave. I have two, but I'll, I'll only communicate one just because we're talking about brainless stuff that we want to just watch. So there's a show on Netflix called people just do nothing. Mm-hmm. And, I feel like it's, we talked about this and I I'm So write this we talked down. about it, but I wanna I wanna people actually make that recommendation. It's about a group of uh guys in the in the UK that have this uh little radio station that probably services uh a hundred people, but it's the most important thing in their life. Their wives actually or, or girlfriends, they work and these guys just do this radio show and all they doing is is hip hop. Garage, they call yeah. it garage. Garage sounds like us. It's, a, it's it's a hip hop, it's hip hop. I don't know how you would describe it. Dub step hip hop uh reggae kind of beats. Over, yeah. over are the dubstep. beats good? You like them? First of all, I think the guys are really talented. Yeah, it's so stupid, and all they do is smoke weed and and do this and do nothing. And it's mm-hmm. so stupid. there's a guy in there, and they did it as a YouTube show first. And there's a guy there. He is one of the funniest guys I've ever seen on TV without actually trying to be funny. Yeah. His character, he wears this, like, ponytail, and every episode, it gets longer, it gets shorter, uh, depending, like, he yeah. wears an actual... Yeah, I, awesome. so I recommend, for a brainless show, just to disconnect and do nothing. Just do nothing. People just do nothing.
2: People so just bad. do nothing. Yeah. All right. Well, that is a great way to end this
3: this, this series. Do. Thank you. Thank Andrew. This was a very entertaining show. It flowed. Andrew was Uh, great. People, please, please, please send in your songs, send in your comments, subscribe. I mean, where can they do
2: this? We know how they subscribe. You go to any of your favorite podcasts, it's called Everything is personal. How do they personal. comment? How do they comment? Are they, is there a place that people can can write? Yeah, there's to? a.
3: They can comment on Apple uh, just where you download the, yeah, the podcast.
2: To give We've us a review, thank you.
3: Great, great reviews on there, and uh, YouTube also uh, because we have the unedited versions of the show on What's YouTube. Unedited so DNA. unedited, <laughs> you can't <laughs> yes, believe how
2: unedited yeah. they are.
3: <laughs> it's it's really yeah it's wa- watch that and subscribe to that and uh yeah i would just say apple or any of the places you watch uh or you listen to your podcast please leave your feedback we read those things we respond to them so yeah keep doing that yeah another great show brother love
2: great it great show brother thank you so much i'm out yeah all right all right peace all right.